Last time, we saw the ordination of the priests in chapter 8 and 9. Aaron and his four sons who were anointed as priests, and they were keeping that week-long vigil in the tabernacle. Then in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, were struck dead by the Lord. Fire came out and consumed them because it said they had offered strange or unauthorized fire to the Lord. Not quite exactly sure what that means. They might have been drunk. They might have been using some other kind of pagan Egyptian ritual. It doesn't specify. But the Lord reminds Aaron that you have to be holy if you're going to approach me. And you are not able just to come into my presence in any old way, which has been the major lesson of Leviticus, that God has, has come to dwell in the tabernacle, yet how are we as people to approach God in his holy place? And so we continue to answer that question. And as we get into chapter 11, this is another discrete section of the book. Chapters 11 through 15 are going to describe the concept of cleanness for the nation of Israel. This is not the same thing as cleanliness, right, of, of actually just being clean. This is ceremonial, ritual cleanness. If you've read your Bible, you're familiar with this term about being clean or unclean. Chapters 11 through 15 explain what that is, of how they might approach God's presence. And next time, we will discuss this at length as we get into chapters 12 through 15, as it talks about leprosy and things like that, and what it means to be clean and unclean. But tonight, we're going to, we're going to focus on a specific piece of this, which are the food laws in the book of Leviticus. These are the kosher laws, to use the modern terminology. The word kosher is a, is a derivation from a Hebrew word that means approved. And the food laws figure prominently in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so it's important for us to understand them. We're going to look at what they were, first of all. We're going to walk through them and see what were these laws. We're going to talk briefly about why they were given, which is the broad picture is easy to understand, yet the specifics sometimes are a mystery to us. And then we're going to spend considerable time explaining why do we as Christians not keep these food laws today? If you've ever wondered that question, even briefly, we're going to answer it tonight. There is a good answer for it. The New Testament talks about it at length, and so that's what we're going to do tonight. Let's begin by reading the first two verses of chapter 11, just to set up what we're going to talk about tonight. We are just coming out of the narrative portion of the ordination of the priests and the loss of the first two. Chapter 11, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. This section is notable because God addresses Moses and Aaron both. Usually it's just been to Moses, but because these cleanliness laws are to be enforced and instructed by the priests, this is one of only a number of places where Aaron was included in receiving this revelation from the Lord. And we can expect that this happened while they were standing in the tabernacle, uh, grieving over the oldest two sons, but also participating in these ceremonies. And before we go through each of these rules that are given, we're going to take some time to, to ask ourselves, why did God give these instructions? Why these animals and not others? 
This is an important question to ask because every time you think you've got it nailed down, there's one in there that kind of slips out and that category doesn't quite uh, encompass all of that. So there's five reasons that are, are typically given that I was able to discover of why God made these rules. So why these critters and not others? Number one is that, well, God just made an arbitrary decision. That God said, don't eat this because I said so. And this is just an assertion of God's sovereignty. Now, that is entirely possible, and that's certainly part of it, right? No one else has the right to tell you what you can and cannot eat except the Lord. Maybe you've told a, a personal trainer that once upon a time. But that does not seem to be the only reason why God said not these and others or, or, or these and no others. Because God typically doesn't do things just because he can. Sometimes he does, and Romans 9 reminds us that's exactly what God has the right to do. So that's, this is certainly part of it, that they were to avoid these because God said so, but I don't think this was just an arbitrary decision. The second reason put out there is for religious reasons. It was because of religion. And by that I mean these animals that were forbidden to them were often used in these pagan sacrifices, and God wanted his people to abstain from those sorts of things. Pigs are very often brought up as an example of this. That swine were often used in Egypt and in Canaan in ceremonies honoring the dead and, and the gods of the underworld. The pigs were especially associated with that. Now that is historically true, and God certainly did want to keep his people away from the paganism of the promised land. But this also seems insufficient because if God was trying to keep Israel from eating certain animals associated with false worship, well, Baal, the god of Canaan, was always pictured as a bull. And they worshipped Baal by offering bulls. And goats, of course, are used in witchcraft all over the world. So all of those were permissible to eat and to be sacrificed. So, like I said, this seems like an insufficient reason. At the very least, it seems that God was trying to put boundaries around what they ate because if you can't eat what your pagan neighbors can eat, there's going to be a limit on the kind of fellowship that you can have with each other. But I don't think this is the main reason why. The third reason put out there, and I, I kind of like this one, is that these were hygienic reasons. God said these animals and no other because of hygiene. God made these rules to keep Israel healthy. Now, as we go through this, you will see that this was very often the case. We're going to read tonight that if a rat falls into a bowl of something you're cooking, you've got to throw the bowl of stuff away. You can't eat it. That seems like a good hygienic rule, don't you think? And this is true in many ways. For example, pigs again. You all know that if pigs are not cooked to a certain level, they can be very unsafe to eat. And some of these uh, Birds of prey that God will forbid them from eating. You shouldn't eat vultures. They're not good for you, right? But some of the things that he did prohibit them from eating are perfectly safe. Certain kinds of fish that he prohibits, like shellfish. Uh, camels, kind of icky to us, but camel meat is perfectly safe. In fact, it's safer than a lot of different kinds of things. And they were widely available in that culture, not so much here. And then what about the New Testament when God opens it up and says that you can eat all of these things? Cooking technology had not greatly advanced at that point. So if this was the reason why God commanded it, then it seems to be a little hard to stand on. So I think this was part of it, probably not the only reason why. Number four is that these were just instructive reasons. He gave them instruction through what he, what he ignored. We'll pick on pigs again. 
this is Andrew Bonar, who is a great man of God from uh, the 1800s, I believe, maybe the early 1900s. And he's got a great commentary on Leviticus. And he runs through every different animal and how this was not permitted because it would remind them of this kind of sin. Pigs, for example, wallow in the mud and wallow in filth, just like sin. We shouldn't be wallowing in sin. Now, that's true, right? He, he talked about how sometimes a fly getting in your face, you're not supposed to eat the fly or touch a dead fly to remind you that bugs are, or that sin is like a bug always flying around your face. Well, I, th those all seem a little preachy. Like they preach real well, but that's probably not the interpretation of what's going on. Uh, we could just as easily do that with sheep and with goats and with bulls if we wanted to. Um, and some of those things will preach just fine, but I don't think that's the main reason. Uh, this is, this last one is the most popular view right now, and I think there's a lot to commend it. This is the view of wholeness, or you might call this the standard animal view. That God made these food laws in order to affirm what was whole and complete in order to teach people to be holy. So as we go through this, you'll see God will kind of hold up a standard kind of animal and say, this is what that kind of animal looks like. And anything that deviates from that, anything that's a little weird, is not to be eaten. And therefore, this is to instruct the people not to deviate from God's standard of holiness and normalcy. And this seems probable for a number of reasons, one of which is that in Genesis chapter 7, verse 2, when God told Noah to take seven of every clean bird and two of every unclean bird onto the ark, Noah knew what he was talking about. So that leads us to conclude that maybe these categories were not quite as specific to Israel as they were to others. It's hard to say exactly. Obviously, the main purpose with all these five things, the main purpose is that the people, as God said, would be holy, for I am holy. God, through the, the creation of these food laws, was to set his people apart, right? The Hebrews didn't eat pork, and that set them apart. Why not? Well, because our God who led us out of the land of Egypt, the one true and living God that beats up all the other gods, told us not to. But I do think there is a lesson to be learned at, with that fifth point as we go through here, that what God has established and created is to be affirmed. We live in a culture that celebrates deviance. We celebrate and honor what is different over and above what is normal. And this is getting really out of hand. It started out as a very important lesson that needed to be learned, that not everybody is going to be like the majority group. So we need to make sure we give rights to minorities and things like that. Uh, but now it's getting to the point where if you are just like everybody else, there's something wrong with you. And we're finding these smaller and smaller and smaller groups that not only need to be acknowledged and included, but celebrated and held up as the standard, which is not the way the Bible portrays it. There, so there you can see there's an overcorrection that we have made as a society. And I'm not going to get too far into that. But we celebrate deviance instead of celebrating what is good and normal. The clean and the unclean, you might say. But we're not going to press the purpose of these laws too strongly. We're going to let God speak for himself. As we go through this chapter, we're going to work our way one section at a time. And we're going to talk about each of these laws and what would and would not have been done in the land of Israel. And then when we come to the end, we'll talk about how the New Testament affects how we read this passage. So verse 3 through verse 8 to begin. These are the animals you may eat. Whatever parts the hoof is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. 
Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So we'll look first at land animals. And God basically restricts their diet to cattle and to wild game, things that you would shoot on a hunt. The rules are, number one, it has to be cloven hooved. So it has to have a hoof that is split. Not like a horse's hoof that is all round. It's all one hoof, but is actually split. And then choose the cud. So you can kind of see that the cow is sort of the standard we're going for here. That is cloven hooves and then choose the cud. So some animals have single hooves. They were unclean. And then he wants them to have animals that are called ruminants. So a cow and other animals like that have four stomachs or sometimes two or three. And they'll swallow their food without really chewing it. Then they'll regurgitate it and chew it again. That's called the cud, right? It's kind of gross. We don't do that. But that's what they do. And uh, the Lord said that if it does not do both of those things, then it is an unclean animal. That immediately rules out most predators. And as we go through this, most predatory animals were not included because Israel, you remember, was not to eat blood. They were not to eat anything that had not been properly prepared and drained of blood. And so God carries that over to the animal kingdom. So animals that did only one of these things, like camels that chew the cud and then they spit, as they, everybody famously knows, that, but they don't have hooves. Camels have a different kind of foot. Pigs, they have cloven hooves, but they have no cud. So those were out. He talks about hares. He talks about rock badgers. The old uh, translations have coney there for rock badger. Some of these animals are kind of hard to nail down exactly what they are, but it's sort of a guinea pig looking thing if you want to go uh, look it up. So this would have permitted cultivated animals like oxen and cows, also deer, gazelle, antelope, things like that, that chew the cud and part the hoof. And giraffe, oddly enough. A giraffe has a cloven hoof and is a ruminant. And I looked this up, that to this day, it is kosher for Orthodox Jews to eat giraffes. I've never had it before, but if I, if I did, I'd be keeping kosher. So... <laughs> I also just finished reading a book about uh, Daniel Boone and the frontiers of America. Apparently, pickled buffalo tongue was a specialty. It was a delicacy among early American life. And it was also kosher because buffalo, bison, American bison, also have cloven hooves and chew the cud. So I don't think uh, Moses ever got a hold of one of those, but they would have been kosher if he was. So uh, the, the land animals, we start with that. Cloven hooves and chew the cud. Verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the water that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters, we'll come back to that phrase, the swarming creatures, and of the living creatures that are in the waters, it is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins or scales is detestable to you. So now we're looking at water creatures. And again, we kind of had the, the cow as your standard land animal. Just your, your good old-fashioned fish is your standard sea critter as, in terms of the food laws of the book of Leviticus. So it had to have, number one, fins. 
And number two, scales, whether it lived in the sea, whether it lived in the river or a lake. Otherwise, it was considered unclean and detestable. So things like bass and snapper and trout and tuna would have been perfectly edible. We see Jesus and the disciples in the New Testament. They're fishing an awful lot and they're catching fish and they're able to eat them. They were clean because they had fins and they had scales. But anything that does not have fins or does not have scales was not clean for them to eat. So things like eels. I don't know why you'd want to eat an eel anyway, but there they are. They don't have fins, so they were not kosher. Sharks. Now, sharks are interesting because sharks actually have scales, but they're so small that the naked eye, you can't hardly see them. It all looks like a smooth thing. They're actually serrated. So if you rub your hand across a shark, it'll cut your hand to pieces. But the, the law that came to be about as they interpreted it was anything that has scales that if you remove them, it will tear the skin of the animal is considered to not have scales in the way that God intended them. So sharks are out. Whales are out because whales do not have scales, neither do seals and sea lions, things like that. Also, swarming creatures. The Lord distinguishes between swarming creatures and, and living things, although they're all technically alive, of course. Something swarming is something that is, is kind of like a creepy crawly. and That's the best term I can use to describe it. Shellfish, to this day, are not kosher. Worms, anything like a stingray that you'd catch in the water. Jellyfish, octopus. You can kind of see it, right? They don't, they don't swim like a fish. They swarm through the water. Also, I found this out. Catfish are not kosher because catfish do not have scales. I've been catching catfish my whole life and I never quite put that together, but uh, they do not have scales. So they're not, they're not kosher. And so you can see a lot of these things are the, the bottom feeder type of foods uh, from the ocean and from the sea. So that could be why the Lord is trying to protect them. Crab would have been out. Lobster would have been out. Uh, and still are for those that keep kosher. And uh, I think you can kind of see how the Lord is doing this. He's setting up this standard creature and anything that deviates from that, instead of having fins and scales, it's got eight wiggly legs, then don't eat that, what God is trying to say. Verse 13 through 19. And these you shall detest among the birds or flying animals. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. So we have flying animals. So the word for bird there is, in Hebrew, means something that flies. So some people want to get cute. Ah, see, a bat's not a bird. Well, they didn't have the same system of classification that we do today. Obviously, bats are technically mammals, but they're flying things. So they're put in the same category here. Now, rather than lay out the rules of what birds were acceptable, instead, God gives a list of things that were not acceptable. And they probably would have been longer than this, but he's giving representative examples of creatures, birds that were not to be eaten. And he uses this word detestable, which we saw with the fish. This is stronger than unclean, and yet it's also nonspecific. And we're not quite sure why God says detestable as opposed to unclean, except for perhaps like, the Lord is trying to express how gross it would be for you to eat a buzzard. Uh, you detest it. It's, it's nonspecific, but it's detestable. And now as we go through these lists, you remember as we were going through the, the building of the tabernacle that figuring out exactly which gemstone was which was kind of difficult because these are very old words. Same thing with some of these birds. So if you have an older translation, you might have different names of birds there. Um, 
you get the same idea from each one, even if one-to-one -one correlation can be difficult. What is pretty clear, though, is that these are predatory birds, vultures, hawks, ostriches, owls, any kind of water bird. Usually a water bird is eating fish, right? And so on. And then he includes bats also. And I'm not going to make a Wuhan coronavirus joke there. Just make up your own and tell it to yourself. <laughs> so our standard poultry would have been acceptable. Any kind of chicken, turkey, uh, duck, goose, that kind of thing would have been acceptable. But God is, you know, they lived out in, in very near desert regions. And God's like, don't be eating these things that are picking off the, the dead bones. That's not good for you to eat that. So standard chickens, that sort of thing is totally fine. Verse 20, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Sorry to break that to you, everybody. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. So we move on to, to bugs here. Very limited options for the Hebrew uh, as far as bugs go. Now look at it. He says on all fours. Now we know that insects have six legs. Don't think that these people were stupid. They knew that. They were around bugs too. But the phrase on all fours, that, that's a euphemistic phrase. That means they crawl on the ground as opposed to walking upright like we do. So don't let that trip you up. I'm not trying to give you a proper leg count here. He's trying to tell you what kind of bugs not to eat, which is most of them. And he gives four kinds of locust-type creatures that are permitted. They have to have jointed legs above their feet. So you've seen those in your house, maybe opening up a closet. We used to have crickets at my house growing up, and they'd get in my closet like way back in my shoes, and I could not find that cricket in the middle of the night, and I'm finding stuff in that closet I lost years ago just so I can kill it and go back to bed. But pretty much anything that hops rather than crawls. Locusts are still eaten in this part of the world. Uh, they are very nutritious, I've heard, and I will just take that person's word for it rather than find out for myself. And then in verse uh, 24 and 25, he says, By these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. I think because of where that's put, I think it's probably a reference to the, in the insects, but it also applies to the rest. You've seen that he's saying you shall not touch their carcasses over and over again. It was not, for example, against kosher to ride a camel or to ride a horse or to shoo something out of your house. But if it was dead and you touched it, the corpse was unclean. And I, I think we all can get on board with that pretty well. Verse 26. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. In context, he's probably talking about their carcass there. And all that walk on their paws, the word there can also be hand, walk on their paws or hands, among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. So land creatures again, focusing especially on those with paws. So dogs, cats, bears, things like that were not to be eaten. And it says everyone who touches them shall be unclean. Again, in context, we're talking about corpses here. If you touch one of these that's dead, you are unclean. And this is kind of our first rule here, that if you touch a dead animal, 
you have to wash your clothes and wash yourself. That seems like a pretty good rule, wouldn't you agree? If you touch a dead thing, you should wash your hands. That's a pretty good rule. In Judges chapter 14, Samson is going to violate this rule. Do you remember? A lion jumps out at him and he rips the lion to pieces. And now that, of course, wasn't wrong for him to do that. He would have been unclean for the rest of the day. Like he would have had to go and wash and everything. But then on his way back, he comes across the carcass of the dead lion where it was before. And bees have made a hive in its stomach. And Samson reaches in and takes the honey home and eats it and feeds it to his parents. And you, as you read that story, you're supposed to be grossed out, and you're also supposed to realize he's not keeping these laws as he's supposed to. As the judge of Israel, he should have known better. He should have stayed away from that. And I don't think you need to know Leviticus to know that don't eat honey out of the stomach of a dead lion, but he did. But we'll come back to the rules related to these things in just a moment. So anything that has paws was not to be eaten. Verse 29 and these are unclean to you among the swarming things, there it is again, that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. So again, swarmy things, creepy crawlies, pests, bugs. In this category, we have things like rats, we have rodents, Lizards, any kind of reptile or amphibian is included in this. That they were not clean, they were not to be eaten. And that's a pretty good rule in most cases. You know, we've, maybe you've had gator tail before, it's delicious. But in most cases, if you find a lizard, you find a rat on the ground, you shouldn't eat it. And this is why the Lord is telling them. So this is what I mean by like, some of these are very clearly hygienic. And so there probably was some of that behind of why God told them these things. Although the main reason was uh, for separation and for holiness. It's also interesting, and you can meditate on what this might mean in your own time, that the method of locomotion, the method of how an animal moves, is very often determined whether or not it was clean or unclean, based on its, on its feet or its hooves or its fins or whether it slithers or whether it jumps. This is very much part of why God or how God made these rules. And I think, once again, we're coming back to God's view of the normal creature, for eating purposes. What is the standard animal that is being deviated from? And it's teaching the people the lesson that I have set up a way that you are to live and you're not to deviate from that. Verse 32, we're going to start to get to the rules of what happens in, in this section, how you clean up after one of these unclean swarming things. And anything on which any of them, remember in context, these are lizards, rats, things like that. Anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it's an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. 
So if one of these things, one of these swarming things gets into your house, a rat, a snake, a lizard, and it gets on the stuff that you cook with, there are some rules to follow. Anything that it touched must be, it says, soaked in water until the evening. That's a good rule. If you find a dead rat in the cupboard, take the shelf out, wash it, leave it aside until the evening, and then you can put it back. That's a pretty good rule, don't you think? Or if you open up the drawer and there's a rat scurrying around in there, same thing. Wash those clothes before you put them back. You can see most of these are just good common sense. But anything that was earthenware, like an oven, now we think oven is a big appliance that you go and buy. They very often made their own ovens out of plaster, out of earthenware, that sort of thing. And if anything unclean got in that and died, it needed to be broken. Because earthenware is different than some of these other materials. It's absorbent. So if something gets in the stove, let's say, let's say a lizard crawled into your stove. And you cooked in there, and then you go to pull the thing out, and there's a dead lizard next to that loaf of bread of yours. Well, dead lizard has now been literally baked into your oven. So God says, take it out, break it, and make you a new one. Don't keep using it. He says, if you've got a vessel and any kind of food or drink falls and it, that is in it, and the thing falls in, you've got to throw it out. I'm sorry. You know, I know that might be what you were going to have for lunch that day, but if you open it up and there's a giant spider in your lunch, throw your lunch out. Like, does he really need to say that? Uh, yeah, I think he did. Now, the, you can see here, there's a very major incentive to keep your house clean. God, God is teaching these people about how to protect themselves from diseases and things like that. And he's like, you, you need to be checking and making sure that your house is not unclean because there's, as we're going to see, a whole ceremony that went along with this. And if you had to touch a dead thing, you were unclean, which means you needed to sit by yourself and not touch anybody until the end of the day which is a good rule when you didn't have hand sanitizer and things like that. Uh, also, the camp itself, that if there was an infestation of some kind, it was now a community priority to get rid of it. And this has been uh, historically something true of the Jewish people. During the time of the bubonic plague, everybody blamed the Jews for the plague because they weren't getting sick. Now, why weren't they getting sick? Because the plague was transmitted through rats mostly, and mice and things like that. And they had these laws here that tell them, don't let this stuff in your house, and if it gets in there, you've got to clean it. So of course they're the ones not getting sick, and uh, Europe did not respond very kindly or wisely to that, but it's, it's a good lesson of what God is trying to teach his people. If something died in a well or a cistern, which is where you kept water, you didn't have to drain the whole thing, but you did have to fish it out of there. Good rule, right? But the guy who fished it out, the guy that got the dead armadillo out of the well, he would be unclean until the rest of the day needed to wash his clothes. Grain, there's rules here. If the grain was still in its husk, then it was okay. So if you're out sowing, sowing the corn and a mouse crawls out, that's fine. But if it was wet and one of those things had been on it, then it was no good. And that's because when seeds get wet, they begin to open up and it absorbs the water in it. And if you've got something nasty crawling all over it, then it's corrupting what you're going to sow. And so the Lord tells them not to do that. So you can see this is not just about diet. It's also about hygiene. And it's right in there with the rest of it. Verse 39. And if any animal which you may eat, so cows, buffaloes, giraffes, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. So the same rule, the only thing I want to draw out here is that clean carcasses still made you unclean. 
Well, I can play with this dead animal because it was a sheep and we're allowed to eat sheep. God goes, no, that's still unclean. It's not sinful, but it's unclean. It's dirty. It's gross. Don't touch it. So uh, the standard rule was to wait until evening, wash yourself, wash your clothes. So it's, it's not onerous here. If it happened early in the day, it might be inconvenient. But again, God is trying to keep his people clean and keep them holy. And some of this, again, seems so basic. But keep in mind that most places today still don't keep all these rules. You might have neighbors that aren't even this clean in their house. I've been to places like Nepal, and uh, it is a dirty place. And I, I mean that quite literally. It is very dirty. There's not a lot of cleanliness that goes on, uh, especially because they worship certain animals. So if a rat runs into your house, well, rats are gods. So don't clean up after the rat because then you're disrespecting the god and then people get sick. And that must have been the will of the rat god in order to get you sick. And I'm not being silly. I'm being honest. That's how they think about these things. So this is why we do things like this. And later on, you know, science and uh, things that we've discovered, like, oh, God kind of knew what he was talking about. This is a pretty safe and clean way to live. Verse 41, every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Another set of rules about swarming things. This time, he's setting some broad boundaries and kind of defining what he means by that. Anything that goes on its belly, most obviously a snake. So snakes are unclean. Anything with many feet, so centipedes, things like that, was not for eating. And to do so, he says in this passage, was be to make yourselves detestable, to defile yourselves, to become unclean. And we're going to, as I said, next time talk more about what it meant to be unclean and what it represented. I do right now only want to draw out the distinction that to be clean was not the same thing as being righteous or good. Just like being unclean was not the same thing as being evil or wicked. Jesus made a big deal in the New Testament over the fact that that leper is unclean. He's not wicked, right? Unclean means dirty. It doesn't mean anything really beyond that. There is some symbolic meaning to it, but it's important to catch the difference there because people will say things like, well, how come when a woman had a child, the Bible says that she was unclean because she was unclean. And, and there needed to be a process of making sure that she was cleansed and that she was healthy and that she could be around people again. And uh, we need to make sure that we get that. I hope you can see this here. That when he says, if you touch a dead animal, you are unclean. That's really not that controversial, is it? Don't eat things that are not clean. Don't eat buzzards. Don't eat bats. Don't eat centipedes. These are just good rules that the Lord has. Going now to verse 45 to the end. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Now again, God gives the reasons for all these rules, which is to be holy. 
Consecrate yourselves, he said. This is the same thing that God had told them when he was going to descend on Mount Sinai. Set yourselves apart for my special purposes. And this is the purpose of the food laws. He refers back to the exodus from Egypt. He says, I'm the Lord that let you out of the land of Egypt, so you're going to consecrate yourselves. Because I took you out from among the nations, you are going to keep yourselves out from among the nations. And one of the ways you're going to do that is through what you eat. Because they had made a covenant with the Lord, they therefore needed to be holy. Now, holy, of course, implies goodness and morality, but it also basically means separate or different or distinct. God is holy and that he is not like us. And this is what he's telling his people. As I am holy, you also must be holy. We see here that the priests had a commission, which we already saw back in chapter 10, verse 10, that the priest's job was to teach the people to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. They need to know. It's up to the priests to tell the people, just like it's my job to teach you what the book says. We all know that we're supposed to believe it, but if you don't know what's in it, you're going to get into some weird places. And later on, the prophets are going to chide the priests for not teaching the people the difference between what was clean and unclean, and therefore led them to sin. But the food laws basically were to separate them. He applied categories of clean and unclean even to food, which meant that even in what they ate, God was teaching the people about right and wrong, about holiness and sin. You know, Jesus also in Matthew 5 verse 48 said, You, Christian, therefore must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus did not relax standards. Jesus intensified standards. He took them to the heart of the matter, which means sometimes the outer shell was set aside, but he got right to the most important thing. So we too as Christians are to be marked as different from the world in holiness and in perfection, to use the word of Jesus. We say things like, now God doesn't want you to be perfect. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. He doesn't require you to be perfect to be saved, but he certainly wants you to be perfect. He doesn't require you to be everything he's called you to be, but he does want you to get there. He does want to lead you there by his Holy Spirit. And this is one of the lessons we learned from chapter 11. Okay, now we've got to answer the question. Why do Christians not keep the food laws today? I don't. You probably don't. We have to answer this question because we just read them that it was all about being separated from the world. And Jesus said we are to be separated from the world. And yet we don't participate in this huge part of the Old Testament. So why not? Every major religion has its food laws. Jews keep kosher. Muslims keep halal. Many Hindus don't eat meat because if everything is God, I don't want to be eating God. It's that same idea. So why not us? We're Protestants, right? We eat meat on Fridays. We do all that stuff. So what's the deal? I'm sure you've probably wondered this before. And there are many that want to try to exploit the ignorance and, and weighty conscience of the church to bring us into bondage to the Old Testament law. And one of the main ways this is done is through the food laws. First, let me say, I have never met anybody who actually keeps these, 
who is, and I know there are Orthodox Jews and so on, but certain stri stripes of Christians. Usually what it is is, oh, I don't eat shellfish and I don't eat pork. But you just walked through this with me. There's a whole long list of stuff that goes along with it. It's not just abstaining from certain things. There are certain standards to follow, certain cleanliness laws related to them, not just to eating them, but to how you go about them. And they're intertwined with one another. You can't just fish them out that way. So when people will tell me, uh, you know, Catlin had a friend in college who, uh, he got into some of this stuff and he started eating the core of his apple. He would eat the whole thing. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to obey what God said and, and keep the laws. Like, that's not even in the law. We just read it. It's not even there. He didn't know, but he found somebody online that told him this is what you ought to do and this is what good Christians do. And he had gotten into some other strange ideas as well. So when somebody says, well, I keep these food laws, inquire further. I just explained them to you and see what's going on. But secondly... Why don't we keep them? Well, the main principle that we've hit many times, we were just in Romans 9, 10, and 11, is that we are not under the law anymore. We're not. Any of it. What about the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are expressed later through the Holy Spirit and His laws of love. But the New Testament makes plain, the Old Testament law is no longer the Christian standard of life and behavior. And the Bible actually says that if you decide to take a piece of the Old Testament law and keep that, that you bring judgment upon yourself. Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul said, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. These Christians in the Galatian cities that were trying to, well, maybe we need to be circumcised and, and keep some of this stuff. And Paul goes, well, if you're going to do that, you better keep all of it. The Bible tells us very plainly, you cannot separate the pieces of law. Well, I keep the moral law, not the ceremonial law. Well, if you read it as we have been, the Bible never makes those distinctions. They all flow together. You know, you say something, well, is the Sabbath a moral law or a ceremonial law? Are the sacrifices moral or ceremonial? You, 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 these categories become arbitrary. James chapter 2, verse 1 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The New Testament, and these are Jews writing this, Hebrews, telling us, Gentiles, you don't want anything to do with this. It's over, and if you really want to live this way, it will break you like it broke us. I don't observe the food laws because the Bible says I don't have to. Christ was enough to make me holy. Now, most people won't say that you have, to, you have to eat the food laws to be saved, but it's kind of like it's a, it's a level up of holiness. But the reason we don't, and we're going to walk through this together now, like the Sabbath, the food laws are given a specific New Testament overhaul by Jesus and the apostles, which we will now examine. First of all, we don't have to keep any of the law, so I'm not going to let anybody put me under any part of it. But secondly, this issue specifically is addressed. All major parts of the New Testament include references to the food laws and the fact that they are obsolete, starting with the Gospels. Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said to them, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then Mark adds, thus he declared all foods clean. I don't know how you can really get around that. Jesus is, 
giving a very explicit statement here. It comes from the Lord himself. He was fighting with the Pharisees because they were upset that the disciples didn't wash their hands the way they wanted them to wash their hands. The Old Testament said, wash your hands. It didn't say how, but they had this whole system worked out about how you had to do it. And Jesus is like, why are you so worried about this external stuff? And Jesus said, there's nothing that is outside of you that is going to defile you. It can't touch your heart. He says, it's the weightier matters of the heart, like adultery and lying and anger that defile you. And so Jesus makes this point to the apostles. And he even kind of gets crass, we might think here. He says, because you put it in your mouth, it goes through your body, and then it comes out the other side. It's expelled into the latrine, the word says there. So how is that going to defile your soul? And then Mark, or Peter, who is the one that gave Mark the, uh, the dictation to write this, says he declared all foods clean. That is a specific apostolic commentary in your Bible. Jesus declared all foods clean. Therefore, there are no more unclean foods for a Christian because Jesus declared all foods clean. And if he said it, that's quite enough for me. And it ought to be enough for us. He declared all foods clean. But this is not the only place it says this. You might want to turn with me to Acts chapter 10. This is kind of the big, the big bertha of this subject in the New Testament. I mean, it should be enough that Jesus said, he declared all foods clean. And if you say things like, well, I don't think that's what he meant. Well, that's what Peter and Mark thought he meant. And that kind of carries more weight with me, no offense. Acts chapter 10, let's read verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's lunchtime. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean, which we just discussed. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. This story is given in all of its detail twice in the book of Acts. First, here, when Peter first had it. And second, when Peter was being interrogated by the other Jewish Christians for eating in the house of a Gentile. And he tells the whole story again. And the whole point of this passage is to include the Gentiles into the church. God is telling Peter, I'm letting Gentiles into my church, and you are not to call them unclean or common. But secondarily, it emphasized that all foods were clean. Jesus had already told us that all foods are clean, and therefore Peter was not to refuse them. Remember, the food laws, as we just read, were to be a marker of separation between Jew and Gentile. And so when God broke down the wall of separation in Christ Jesus, he also removed these cultural markers that would have prevented fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. Not only that, but when the church was given the chance to enforce these laws, these food laws, they didn't. They explicitly didn't. Acts chapter 15, there's a big council in Jerusalem because Paul and Barnabas have been preaching the gospel to all these Gentiles and they're getting saved, but they're not making them keep the law. So all the Pharisees that had gotten saved, we're still hearing from those guys, 
We're saying, no, they've got to be circumcised and they've got to keep the law of Moses. So they go through this whole council and this is how they conclude, Acts 15. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't bother them. But should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Nothing in there about clean or unclean foods. Peter, actually, in that chapter, Acts 15.10, calls the law of Moses an unbearable yoke. It was something that we couldn't keep and neither could our forefathers. So why are we going to make these poor Gentiles try to keep these laws? They only even gave the ones they did to try to keep the peace between Jews and Gentiles. But I don't want to get into those right now. The only point I want to make is that the early church made a conscious decision that we're not going to enforce the food laws upon the Gentiles who have just been saved. So Jesus declared all foods clean. Peter had the vision of the sheet and was told, rise, kill, and eat. And in the early church, when they had the opportunity to enforce the law, they chose not to. And the epistles address this issue numerous times. I've got a lot of scripture here because I want to overwhelm you with the fact that the Bible has a stated opinion on this matter. Here's this, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8. Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He's there talking about a different matter, but the principle is so clear. Food is not going to commend you to God. You're not going to stand before God and he's going to ask about what you ate. You're not, you're not better if you somehow don't eat something and you're no worse off if you do. It's, it's immaterial. It's, it's not here nor there. Food will not commend us to God. Then in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, he's talking about the old covenant. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He gives us a timeline for the laws of food and drink and washing. That it was until the time of Reformation, when Christ came. He's saying, when Jesus came, we don't need these things anymore. They have expired. They had a purpose, but now they no longer do. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Romans 14, verses 14 through 17. Paul here is talking about food that had been sacrificed to idols and then sold in the meat market. But the way he talks about it is much broader than that specific issue. Listen to this. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Hear this now, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now Paul is kind of coming at this from the other way. There's those of you that have liberty to eat whatever you want, don't come to those that have a weak conscience that feel like they have to do these things and make a big deal out of it to them. 
and rub it in their face. He says, that's not good and that's not loving. And if it's good for you, but you try to push your opinions on somebody about a matter that, again, is neither here nor there, he says, then you're not living out the gospel because the kingdom of God has nothing to do with what you eat or drink. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 gets a little more serious here. It says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So some people are going to go away from the faith in the latter days. They're going to go to be people who are inspired by demons. They're insincere liars. And here's the kind of things he says they will make people do. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What a difference of opinion and perspective Paul has. It's not that this thing is going to defile me. It's that I am going to sanctify this thing by my prayer and by my obedience to the Lord. He says there are going to be false teachers in the last days who are trying to reimpose weird food laws and also weird sexual laws. But we're only addressing one of these issues tonight. Hebrews 13.9 says the same thing. He warns them against false teachers that were going to make rules about what they could and could not eat. Nothing, they say, is to be refused if you do it in faith and holiness. And then Colossians 2.16. Another very clear statement here. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. That's, that's pretty liberating and straightforward, isn't it? Let no one pass judgment on you because of food and drink. You eat that? You drink that? I would never. I would never. You need to eat that or you need to drink that or you're not saved. He's like, don't let anybody judge you that way. Let nobody judge you. I, I simply do not see how you can read all of this and come to the opposite conclusion that the Bible teaches us that a New Testament Christian has to observe dietary laws. This is why you have to know the entirety of Scripture, not just reading one passage in Leviticus and then some prophets that spoke about it and completely ignore everything Jesus said and the apostles said. Because, y'all, Jesus changed things. Do we not know that? He changed things. Specifically here, he declared all foods clean. God declared them clean and unclean in the beginning. And then when Jesus came, he declared them all clean because he was trying to remove the barrier between Jews and Gentiles so that all could be saved. It's called progressive revelation that God was doing something and that we're standing at the end of it. And you shouldn't try to keep the beginning part of it and completely ignore what happened at the end. Paul said, in 1 Timothy 1, 6-7, certain people have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul says, there's a lot of people, Timothy, that you got to watch out for that love to take the law and come up with weird ideas, but they have no idea what they're talking about. The law today remains a seedbed for false teaching. We walk in grace not under the law. Romans tells us that over and over again. We are not under law, but under grace. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So that's why. 
That's why we don't keep the food laws. Now, if somebody wants to observe those laws, knock yourself out. It's neither here nor there, remember? If you say, well, I don't want to eat pork and I don't want to eat catfish and I don't, you know, I don't want to eat any of that stuff, go for it. You say, I don't want to drink that. I don't want to drink alcohol. I don't want to drink sugary drinks because of you know, gluttony and all that. Go for it. But don't you dare come to anybody and start telling them they've got to do that because God says so because he didn't. And neither do you start strutting around with your liberty and your freedom in Christ and trying to smack people around that have a stronger conscience than you, or actually, as Paul would say, a weaker conscience than you. But for all that, the lesson that we learn from Leviticus 11 of holiness and consecration, that's still true. That is still true in this dispensation. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Liberty in Christ is not a license to sin. And we have to maintain a separation from uncleanness. We do not keep ritual separation from the world anymore. But we do have to keep moral separation. Like Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would not take the king's delicacies. This was a very strong affirmation that we're going to keep God's Torah, keep his law. Now we know that Jesus has declared all foods clean. So this is not an issue we deal with any longer. But there are plenty of other things that people try to pressure us into doing as Christians. And we have to maintain a distinction and a separation. And that will look different according to each one's conscience. But we do have to learn the lesson that we must be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy.